Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and you're listening to I Love That Movie. And if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram, I Love That Movie Podcast. And you can support us on Patreon. This show is free, but if you want to support us, you can at patreon.com slash I Love That Movie. And I do want to thank my top patrons, which are Chris Balga, Jeff Woodman, and Michael Cross. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. Um, I've also got a Teespring, in case you want, I love that movie, swag, a Discord, and a Facebook group, and of course, our website. All I ask is if you guys like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. And I guess my last plug is, at least for the time being, every Saturday we're still doing a quarantine movie chat (laughs) where we all press play at the same time and watch a movie together. You can find out more about that on my Twitter and Facebook. Um... But yeah, so today I have a new guest on the show. I have, some of you guys may have heard of Evil Ted. Hello. Hello, everybody. (laughs) And uh, if you could, uh, Ted, just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience. Hi, everybody. My name is Evil Ted. I um, spent the last 30 years working in the movie industry doing visual effects, costumes, and props. I got started in the industry from watching movies. So when you guys approached me about doing this show called I Love Movies, I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course I'll do it. <laughs> um, uh, the love of movies and what got me into movies got me into making stuff. And that's why I started working as a costume builder, I like doing costumes and props. I originally started doing miniature work and of course, loving doing miniature work, but the, this, the CG wave came in and kind of eliminated that work. And so I changed gears into props and costumes but still have the love for the arts of film and movies. Uh, and now I recently started a YouTube channel called the Evil Ted Channel, where I teach uh, newcomers the uh, concept of building something from nothing. And my big pitch is using foam, EVA craft foam, and taking stuff that would really, you know, you could is really available to everywhere, like a craft store or a hardware store, and making cool movie props and costumes, which is stuff around the house. That's awesome. Yeah, actually, uh, so Nick's joining us today as well. I don't I'm think here. I introduced you yet, Nick. Yeah, but uh, you, sure every, I'm people here have enough. heard you. People yeah. are tired of me. <laughs> but um, actually, uh, Ted, we just watched. Um, what, yeah, we watched the uh, the online costume contest last Saturday. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was uh, uh, amazing. We, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it came together so quickly. Uh, we had a friend in Texas, Frostbite, and he his going joke was, I have some silicone. I want to make some some trophies before the stuff goes bad. And so he uh, approached Chris, who's better known as Talk Customs, and they really quickly, just for fun, like, hey, let's just throw a costume contest. We'll just do it online. And by doing it online, opened it up, and it became international. So we started got we kind of got together on uh, Zoom and started talking about it, like what do we want to do and setting rules. 
And within 30 days, we pulled off this online costume contest. It was the level of talent was an insane and the tributes and the love that everybody got and how much um, people, they made this little fan film for us. Uh, uh, and it was just so sweet to watch these people do the drop brush, the drop brush video where they would all pass a brush <laughs> off wearing different costumes. And we, I was really moved by that. I love the fact that um, I'm just happy to be a part of a community where people are sharing ideas and techniques and oh, not, yeah. not harboring them. And I did, cause I, I, I come from an industry was the, uh, it, I came from an industry where all that stuff was trade secrets and, and, gotcha. and it was, everybody was a gatekeeper to techniques, which always, irritate the crap out of me because I always kept telling people, if you think that technique or trick is going to make you special, you're a knucklehead because somebody's going to figure it out anyway and they're just going to make it better. And right. it's, it, yeah. So anyway, but that's, it was just so great. And I'd be really uh, proud and humble to be a part of that group. I, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, you know, my guests always pick the movie. I always say that because a lot of people say, when you do this movie, I'll be on. I say, nope, you got to pick it. <laughs> so, Ted, you picked a movie to talk about today. What what movie did you pick? I picked the movie called The Forbidden Planet. Yes. And 1956. I, 1956. And it was, I'm sorry. I said the, but it's actually just called Forbidden Planet. Uh, <laughs> it, it was um, the reason this film made such an impact on me. I was very young. And I'm going to take you guys back in a time capsule where there was no uh, – video recording devices or DVDs or VHS tape and stuff. The only time you saw these shows is when they're on television. And when you saw it, it was the first time you saw it. And sometimes you'd see it. Uh, I saw it in the Midwest on TV. And and if you were lucky, it wasn't cut down on, they would cut stuff out of it for commercials, mm, which I yeah. thought was always like should be illegal, which they don't do anymore <laughs> now. But back then growing up, that's what they would do. Every time you watch it, you would see something different or new because they would cut different scenes out for commercials. Um, mm -hmm. As growing up, I saw it and lost my mind. I was like, ah. And so TV would come around. Like when it would come back on, we'd get these things called TV guides. And you'd get them at the grocery store, people. And it was, oh, this week's TV guide. So you'd buy the TV guide as a kid and you'd look through it. And there's channels you'd always look for that knew who were going to play like the monster movies or the sci-fi. And for us, it was channel 30 or channel 11. And I got the TV guide and had Forbidden Planet. And what was happening was, I think it was on a weeknight and I was supposed to be doing schoolwork. And my dad was like, my dad's like, well, you can watch it another time. I'm like, dude, no, it's going to be like. It's like I it's it's I don't know when it's going to be on again. You know, it's like it's not right. It's you not never did. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. People, TV wasn't like cable. It did not go in rotation very high, guys. So it was like, so it was a big deal to see it. But when I saw it, it was such a treat, and it made an impact on me because it was such a great sci-fi premise. For anybody out there, I don't want, for you people, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler. Um, this film that was made, uh, it takes place in the future where we are colonizing on space. And there's people all over the all over the universe, and um, this is these guys on this great spaceship. And the king above the spaceship was this is what Gene Roddenberry got the idea for mm -hmm. Star Trek. It really inspired the idea of military in space, like oh, the, like a federation or organization. And right, these guys, yeah. yeah, these guys were military, and they and they kind of played up the whole sailor aspect of it. And they had the cool ass uniforms, and they show up, and their job was to check on this planet. They surveyed this Earth type like planet and they haven't had contact with these people in 20 years. So they swung by to say mm -hmm. hi, only to find out that all these people are dead and gone, except for this Dr. Mobius and his daughter. Like, dun, dun, dun. And as a kid, I was so blown away. And this was 
at the time when they made this film was, I think, was the most expensive science fiction film of its time. I think by budget standards, it was almost a million dollars, which is almost laughable mm. now. But at that era <laughs> in the 50s, a million dollars on a movie and a production, everything was built in hand. There's all these matte paintings and cell paintings. Um, anyway, I can get into effects. Let's get back to the story. The whole concept <laughs> no. was is that it dealt with this alien race and this Dr. Mobius guy who was obsessed with finding technology from this great alien race that once lived on this planet. And they all lived there and found all these relics, relics of these guys that were still up and running and super clean and machining and working. And he was baffled because he couldn't figure out what happened to him. And then sure enough, all the people that lived with him all got mutilated by this invisible monster only to find out that the monster comes from the id it's the id inside of them. It's his thought. Mm -hmm. And by being on this planet, playing around with this machine he found, it amplified his subconscious into this physical creature, this energy being that would go and do his um, his sub, like, as a human being, we all have, we all basically are animals. We're like a little bit higher evolved lizards. Like we're all these, we are, and basically as we evolve, we don't get rid of these instincts so much as that we know how to control them as we get older. Or we get more sure. wiser through generations, but the and almost like right now with all the stuff going on in the world right now, with the pandemics and the rises, people we are getting broken down to our basic culture, a basic of like anger and survival and, and emotions and stuff. So the idea that this subconscious monster came from him, and at the turning point in the film, he finally realizes the monster is him. It's mm -hmm. it's his his jealousy and his anger and his resentment. And when he's awake and he's conscious, he's fine. He's, he's able to control it. But when he falls asleep, his mind wanders, and that's when the id strikes. Right. Yeah. I think to kind of put it in perspective, you were talking earlier about the uh, the budget. I think you know we've done some. We've talked about and discussed a lot of um, movies around this time in the fifties and sixties where they were kind of, um, you know, like B movies, sci-fi and horror. Oh, yeah. but this is not that this is, you know, like elevated, I guess, sci-fi. Um, I think the first time that I saw it, I think I was an adult by the time that I saw this. What about you, Nick? I think it's one of those things where I've seen it off and on, mm -hmm. like maybe not all the way through till I was a little older. I remember seeing bits and pieces as a kid because yeah, the I robot would, is like I would like often a... get old <laughs> Lost in Space episodes that I'd see on rerun. Oh, yeah. And this confused because Robbie the robot looks a lot like robot. He really does. Because <laughs> it, it was designed by the same guy. The, the same oh, okay. okay. Well, that uh, makes sense. The okay. same, well, the, the guy who actually built the robot, Robbie, there were all different people pitched into the design. As a Japanese designer, he designed the robot and he made it and then went on to make Robbie for Lost in Space. He after gotcha. after after Forbidden Planet, which that robot to this day, Robbie is still a groundbreaking robot. And they spent like uh, like I'm trying to think back then it was almost 150 or like 500 thousand. Like I forgot they spent for the time they built that suit, it was ungodly expensive because they had to do all this work and machining to make it work. That by the time it's said and done, the studio owned that robot. So immediately they said, well, let's make a movie with this robot again. And they made a film called Invisible, The Invisible Boy. Mm, and, okay. the, yeah, and the robot was basically the centerpiece of that show. And then throughout gotcha. throughout decades in sci-fi, there's not a TV show or science fiction movie in from the, from the 70s into 80s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that didn't have Robbie in it. Like yeah. Robbie, Robbie made cameos in all those movies. Right. Yeah. Notice in the uh, the intro credits, it even says "Introducing Robbie the Robot," yeah. like as if he was 
That's so cool. I didn't notice that. Not necessarily like. Well, because it was the first time. Yeah, he was. He was a piece. And it's like he's an actor almost. Like you're going to see him again. (laughs) Yeah, he was a big character. That's pretty cool. That's I noticed when we were watching it. I mean, you can tell they put a lot of money into Robbie and everything because it still it still looks good. Yeah, the the whole movie looks great. It looks fantastic even today. All the movement, the triggering, the lighting, the clicking. And they talked about the rigging of Robbie's light grid on his mouth Mm -hmm. when he lit up. They had somebody off camera on set with a microphone and had a wire going to Robbie. And he would read all the dialogue. And so the lights would ramp up to this guy's voice coming through the uh, microphone. Oh, they wow. gave, so they gave him. And then, of course, they would come back later and post and dub in the actor's voice. But they want to have somebody on set reading the dialogue. That makes sense for the on, timing. Yeah, for the actors, the timing. So the Robert yeah. would talk. And so it was just to get that the reactive LED. The, uh, that was neon at the time. It was this neon reactive light. Gotcha. Well, next, I you kind of already summed up the uh, the movie pretty well. I'm going to just read like a really fast synopsis. And as you said, Ted, you're so right. We do not do spoiler free stuff on the show. This is just a discussion. So um, I would definitely go see this if you haven't seen it yet and then come back. Or if you just want to hear us talk about it and, you know, pitch this movie to you, that's fine, too. Uh, this is a really quick synopsis of Forbidden Planet. Uh, in this sci-fi classic, a space craft travels to the distant planet Altair IV to discover the fate of a group of scientists sent there decades earlier. When Commander John uh, J. Adams and his crew discover only two people, Dr. Mobius and his daughter on the planet, uh, who was born on a remote planet, uh, soon Adams begins to uncover the mystery of what happened on Altair IV and why Morbius and Altera are the sole survivors. Um, and yeah, that's a pretty, pretty decent, quick pitch. <laughs> well, it's a nice, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a nice setup. It's a nice setup. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great setup. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of to what you were saying earlier too, I'm going to read a couple quick, like throw in a couple quick facts as well. Um, just like you mentioned, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry has been quoted as saying this film was his major inspiration for that series. Uh, perhaps not accidentally, Warren Stevens, who plays Doc here, would later become a guest star on Star Trek, the original series, uh, by another name. Uh, were the true shape of the alien Kelvins, like the Krell in this movie, uh, was implied to be extremely non-humanoid, but never shown. Um, and 1701, which is a serial number of the Starship Enterprise allegedly comes from the clock mark 1701 when the c57d enters orbit around altair 4 wow awesome there was um, a thing too that was groundbreaking at the time because this was the 50s and most sci-fi genre films were considered schlocky and b-movie and what yeah. they, and what they did back then was everybody wanted to have like uh, a monster or a villain or a creature so uh, always on the, on the covers was either a monster or a robot holding a girl, and um, right. they always do something <laughs> menacing. And so, for the uh, the advertisement for Forbidden Planet, they realized that that was the that was not the direction they're going for with this movie. But for the ad campaign, they made these posters of Robbie yeah. holding the young woman, and never mm. in the movie does it ever happen or anything like that. <laughs> but they 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 realized they needed to kind of sensationalize to get people in the theater to go see this movie. So this great giant poster of the robot is forbidden planet and Robbie's there and he's got the, the young woman in his arms and he's actually the hero and the, the robot's kind of the cool character in the movie. And they just kind of portrayed him as the villain to get people in the seats. Yeah. And it kind of, it's a good idea too, because you know, you don't want to 
give away the secret right at the beginning because this this whole movie is sort of loosely based on the tempest and so it kind of follows the same plot but by having that robot carry her in the poster it's sort of a misdirect and i think the robot though is very friendly in the movie he seems a little o- ominous at times you know there, he's sort of a question mark for parts of the film and then as the story you know goes on you find out that he's a he's an ally one thing i notice um i think uh yeah the poster the older posters have him holding uh what's her um i think it's altera, altera. Mm-hmm. i think when we watched it we streamed it it must be an updated poster because yes leslie nielsen and altera and then robbie's actually carrying dr morbius yeah he does <laughs> happen in the yeah. movie <laughs> yes and he does it carrying dr morbius and also there's another shot of him carrying the dock uh the doctor uh the spaceship, oh, yeah. the spaceship. Oh, yeah. after he, yeah. he tries to use that, uh, that machine. He used the machine on his head, and of course the robot grabs him and brings him out. And uh, th- yeah, but there's I've seen posters. And as a matter of fact, the, the newest DVD, I got the anniversary, I got the 50th anniversary disc special. And on the cover, they have him holding the uh, the dock after his bun on the machine. Yeah. Um, also, you know, that, that kind of wraps up my, uh, my quick facts. Did you have any quick facts you wanted to throw in too? Uh, well, it was just that at the time when I saw this was the era where visual effects was very, very practical and old school. And there was mm-hmm. these amazing, amazing matte paintings. So most of the shots of the landscapes are matte paintings. And when they had the guys on set, they literally painted backgrounds and stuff. This is back in the day was had a very much of a old school theater vibe to it in the sense of like they would just build rocks. But anything beyond that set, they would actually paint and um Dr. Morbius's place is a matte painting. Uh, there's a mm. great shot where um, the guys are waiting outside the spaceship and Robbie comes to pick him up. And in the distance is a dust trail coming. And uh, they're like, wait a minute, look. And they look in the horizon. It's all practical. It's like a little dust trail flying down on this beautiful matte painting of a desert alien landscape. And you see this little dust trail coming. And when you watch it, it's very effective because I'm thinking – how the hell these guys pull that off? Because yeah. it's such a great little trick, and it's from a distance. And of course, then Robbie pulls up, and you, know, and you get the gist. Okay, it's, it's from him coming to the desert really fast. But they, <laughs> they show, but it was it's all done in camera. So it's like a little dust trail, ah. and it's really slick. Um, the other thing too is that uh, Robbie, anything with Robbie carrying something or lifting something, uh, it's super lightweight. But I'm sure they had cables and suspending things above them. Um, but the uh, the guns, uh, the weapons, the uniforms, this film was such a groundbreaking movie and they spent so much money making all this stuff that once a film like this is done, it all goes into the warehouse. And so yeah. from that point on, those uniforms, the, um, the forbid- all the, the space guys, the, the kind of like the, uh, the Space Force guys in their uniforms were used in almost every sci-fi show from out of like the twilight zone and everything from wow, the 50s. I, mean, I didn't realize that when you watch the 50s and 60s they, they get recapped a lot in a lot of tv shows because mm. they always said hey we need a sci-fi because of television they don't have time to build stuff so they always sure grab stuff. so a lot of b movies in that era shortly after that film the, the studio put out they would just throw those guys in those uniforms <laughs> well they're great looking uniforms exactly so. <laughs> and once they were made like and if you weren't a, an enthusiast fan like i was about that show you most people don't really spot them like uh, as I do because you make right. a, I make a career up of making and building stuff. So every time you see something, it just gets repurposed all the time. That's so cool. I we've, love that. We've thought about making those uniforms. Yeah, we're like, we should try to make these. Although I haven't had great success making <laughs> uniforms in the past. So I don't well, know. Like, like the inside joke is when they made Starship Troopers, the movie, um, once Starship Troopers was over and done, 
same thing. All these, all those helmets and those vests and those uniforms got shelved and thrown in the studio. So then those made they had a, they relived again on uh, uh, the TV show Serenity. Uh, the oh, evil, okay. the evil empire guys were basically wearing Starship Trooper uniforms. The helmets were all repainted. Uh, they used them again in um, uh, Babylon Five uh, wow. series. It's like, like because they had so many of them, and they would just grab yeah. and repurpose them everywhere. So it was very that's, funny. That's really cool. I love that. Well, um, so this movie was directed by Fred M. Wilcox. Um, do you know a lot about this particular director? No, I do not. But the one thing I remember stuck out to me was that there was no there was no musical soundtrack for this movie. Oh, good point. There was all this is the groundbreaking movie with groundbreaking sound effects. It was a um, it's kind of this weird electronic device where you cause electrical energy and you move your hands back and forth. It makes that weird like. Like, like a Thurman, like yeah. Like the yeah. entire this entire soundtrack was done with a Thurman and some sound mixing and sound effects. There's literally not one piece of move, music in this entire movie. Well, that definitely influenced Star Trek too. Then for the theme, <laughs> you know, and it, it just yeah, and it's such it's when you watch it to understand they were just breaking rules left and right. It's like. Which is so amazing. So it's a really cool choice. Yeah, yeah. I, I I saw the only other thing that I really recognized that this director made was uh, Lassie Come Home. But I'm sure someone at home is listening and they're like, Lisa, how dare you? You've missed all their other greats. <laughs> so somebody needs to come on there and talk about those two. But <clears throat> that was the two that stood out to me. This one and Lassie Come Home. But I think this is probably you know the biggest film that that he's known for. Oh, I'm for I'm sure. sure he was. Yeah, it was like they said, hey, they probably just assigned this guy as a director. Like, hey, who's going to direct this? I'll let him do it. But it's like <laughs> the people were behind the camp, not so much the director, but the guys behind the, all the people who are putting the uh, visual facts and the, the art direct mm -hmm. and the costumes and stuff. That's what made this show. It's like and the script. The script was right. solid. It's such a great solid script. And everybody's and that's back in the era where everybody was just um, acting was amazing. Um, and once this film came out, Robbie, I know Robbie did a lot of touring with the suit. Uh, they would take. Oh, the, really? Yeah, That's take, great advertising. Yeah, they took the <laughs> robot out. Yeah, I think he was at the premiere too, and they dressed him up. And there's that's so cool. And there was a talk show, and there's some like it was some guest spots on TV shows, and he would show up to promote the movie. That's wonderful. Um, Kelly pointed out in the group, and of course Nick and I are aware that you know this is a serious role for Leslie Nielsen in this movie too. <laughs> Because um, growing up for us, you know, he yeah, was hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah, but exactly. But he, when he was uh, a young man, he was he was a good looking guy, and he was also, but he was always cast as the kind of dashing lead. Yeah, was, you can uh, totally see that. You, can, when you see him when he was young. You're like, he, he's, he's a you know, tall, good looking guy. It's like, and he's tall, and he's, and he's like, and he was like the dashing lead guy. And a lot of uh, actors we spot. Um, there's actually the young the doctor who played the um, one of the crew members who was the. Radio transmission specialist guy went in to play Oscar Goldman from Six Million Dollar Man. Oh wow! Okay. So yeah, so that was he was one of the main crew guys too. Yeah, I saw that the the actress in the movie that plays Altera and Francis. She, well, first of all, I kind of looked it up really quick because I was kind of trying to get a feel like this time when I was watching, I was like, how old is she supposed to be? Because she's very, very innocent, like you mentioned uh, earlier. But she, I think she was like 26 when this came out. So she's just got such a baby face. And yeah, she's, she's so super beautiful. young. Yeah. Yeah. And she, I think she went on to do like a bunch of movies with this director as well. So I'm like, oh, good. She had a, a good career. <laughs> um, well, you know, in this section of the show, I think we should talk about some of your favorite scenes. 
So oh, what, um, what are some of your favorite scenes from this movie? One of my favorite scenes, it's a classic shot. You got to understand two people, when this film came out, it was the first one to do a lot of stuff. And one of them is that when uh, Dr. Mobius takes the guys on a tour of the of this underground like installation that the Krell people built. And as they're walking, mm -hmm. these giant sliding doors, and he made an observation about the doors being triangular shape to make reference to the size, the, the shape of these creatures weren't built like us. They had a different shape right. to them. And there's these spectacular map paintings and shots where he's walking. There's this giant energy beam and this sphere on this on this track moving up and down, which was a, something they shot and tilt sideways to give this giant energy ball moving. And like, it was all these great, just big, giant, epic shots. And they didn't cut away quickly. It was just back in the day where they let shots play. This wasn't the MTV generation of editing. It was like, Everything was, everything was very slow and very stoic intentionally. And um, I had, a, I had a, a, a fangirl moment because um, I met a man named by the name of Bob Burns. And Bob Burns was an old studio editor that uh, would edit film and cut stuff. And, and, of course, he was kind of being replaced by the, the wave in the future. And so he kind of got retired and he retired. But Bob became such an enthusiast. He was a collector. And he started collecting mm -hmm. things and movies and props, and he became so known for it because nobody was doing it at the time. When a movie yeah. was when a movie was over with, and people don't realize this, this isn't this whole love for props and costumes and things did was not really around for a long time. People didn't really once the production was over with, they would just shelf it or throw it away. If they couldn't reuse it, wow. they'd throw it out. So a lot of great classic stuff and matte paintings and miniatures and stuff just got pitched when the movie was over. Oh, tragic. And, yeah, and Bob started in the 50s and 60s collecting stuff. And it got to a point where he, people got so beloved that Jim Cameron uh, gave Bob Burns a lot of stuff when they were done with Aliens. He wow. gave he gave, he, he gave him the miniature dropship. He gave him the miniature queen alien. He got an alien head. He got some props. He got the, the like the alien dropship that drops out of the Sulaco. He had the full, mm -hmm. they had the giant model of that in his house. Wow. So they, they kept giving him stuff. So while I was there, Bob had the original Robbie head wow. from Forbidden Planet on display. He had the Robbie head and he had the Krell power supply. There's a great scene where there's these giant control panels that the doctor would show what he could do with his mind. And they would glow up this part of this, these panels. He said that this is the level of power and each panel represents, you know, kilowatts of power. And mm -hmm. of course, Bob said that people were dumping things or throwing things away. And so somebody grabbed one for him. And so he has one of the actual, from the movie, this big giant panel with the acrylic lights. And he has all the acrylic. Wow. It's like, it's just the, the craftsmanship of that era when people did everything out of just wood and, and sanding and pine. And it's just a beautiful piece. And yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And I, I really, when, as soon as I saw it, I knew exactly what it was. I'm like, that's a Krell call. That's a power panel from Krell. Oh. So it's just <laughs> that. And there's it is and if, i don't know if you guys if you want to google it's bob burns and he had there's a book that came out called bob's burns basement uh and he put a book out and he basically it's one of those he he's got he had so many things now that i don't know if he has a place to keep anything anymore it's almost one of those things where it's like he's gonna have to get somehow like a i'm hoping that someday that people somebody who's rich or a millionaire there's been rumors that uh, peter jackson might swoop in and take everything and put it in a museum but it's that like would be he, wonderful cool. but he has all he, enjoy it yeah he has such a magnificent collection of stuff and it's just remarkable yeah. he has the he has the he has a ripley suit from alien the first film 
Whoa. Yeah, it's remarkable. Cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you talk about the effects specifically of this movie too, like that that is what I think stands out the most about this film. In fact, it won an Oscar, didn't it? Yes, it did. I think for special effects. Yeah. So, I mean, and I feel like, you know, these days we're kind of used to that, like where that seems to be the only category that a lot of times sci-fi yeah. takes home something. But this is kind of, you know, groundbreaking. I think it, it it really shows why this has stood the test of time, like you said, all the craftsmanship that was involved with it. And and they would just come up with these shots and like how they're going to do it. They would just figure it out. And like it, it just was, I think one of the most remarkable things too is the, the um, um, I, when you see shots from a movie these days now, it's just an actor staring at a tennis ball on a green screen set. And, <laughs> Sandy Circus, you know, yeah, jumping and around. Yeah, yeah and it's like, although, you know, he does an amazing job. Oh, it's he just, does, it's yeah. Kind of, it's, 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 it's this thing that where the, there's a great scene when this giant space saucer, this spine saucer, it lands. And the the, di- the circle spinning, you know, the big disc, and it's, just, it's a flying saucer. And it's got the spinning light, and it has this pad. It drops out the bottom. Now, this is a miniature. This is built in the 50s. And it was hanging on wires. that had a little Airstream jets to kick the dust up to give this illusion like it's the power fields kicking the dust up. And as this giant mm. model lowers the pot and it lands, it touches ground, and then they cut beautifully to this full – you see the ramps. You see the ramps drop in the same shot. It lands. The pod drops out the bottom. The landing skid comes out the bottom. It touches ground. You see the uh, – the, the little the uh, stairwell ramps drop on the ground. They come out, they hit the ground, and they cut to this master shot of the full-size set of these guys coming out, and it's, it looks just like it. There's no weird, like, most movies have budgets and things, like, they'll go from the miniature to the full-size set. It never looks that great. But this, Yeah, it's the, like a rough cut to yeah, the other thing. <laughs> and it, but they come to this, and they, they built this full-size set of the bottom of the saucer, and it, it is huge. It is massive. And these guys are walking down the stairwell. And as a kid, you're just like, oh, my God, it's a giant saucer. So it's just it's the like production. It's real. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it just looks spectacular. And there was just these giant, giant studio sets. They're all shot indoors. Remarkable. Yeah, I think you know that, and also the I think the aesthetic of the of the saucers. Um, did this movie kind of bring that about? Is that something that you you know a lot about? Like you know, it seems like it definitely influenced how spaceships look going forward. Did it start with this movie? Well, the thing was, it was the uh, start with the uh, the colonizing space, and the, it's so funny because they did the saucer, but the saucer design uh, stuck around mostly for the, the bad guys and uh, mostly, <laughs> yeah. well, no, like yeah. Earth, 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 the flying saucers and stuff. That, but it was one of the few films that actually made this hero spaceship a saucer. Oh, that's true. And uh, you've never seen it since then, but they really, and but the, the design, the look of it, it was great. Um, <clears throat> there was something too, that one thing was interesting about this too, when the saucer was landing, they added additional uh, animation effect to it. It's a glowing, because what we do, what people do now, digitally in post, like they shoot a shot, they go back and digitally put things in. This is mm-hmm. all done optically. So they went in and did cell animation on optical prints. So when the ship is landing, there's this blue glowing ray, and that's all done with animation. And it's the same thing with the Ed Monster and all the laser blast. The laser blasts were all done with cell animation. So it's the old kind of the same thing we do with Disney, but they would go back in and do all this cell animation for the visual effects. I thought that was one neat thing. Like before watching it, like when you kind of see the id monster being electrocuted, I'm like, this kind of seems real familiar. And right. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then when we watched it 
uh, last night in the opening credits, it does say courtesy of Disney. Yeah. And I'm like, that's why it looks familiar. Cause it looks like old Disney animation. I'm yeah. like, okay. I, I could pinpoint that. I just couldn't figure out where I knew it from. But then once I saw the Disney name, I'm like, Oh, it makes sense. It looks like Disney. Yeah. With the cell animation guys, because they realized like we need to do laser beams and we need to do this monster. It's invisible. Yeah. They thought, well, of course we'll do it with cell animation and it's timely and it's costly. But back then that was how you did it. And they had a budget. So they're like, let's do it. So they had these guys go out and that's how, but all the, but despite all the ray guns and everything's spot on with the guns that, and when they go to shoot stuff, uh, when television optical stuff, it came in, like it was always kind of hard to get the, the laser to line up on the pistol sometimes. And it yeah. never, never matches that well. But when this movie came out, cause it was being cell animated. So it's all spot on with all the guns, the weapons and the laser fire. Yeah. There's a lot more, you know, they have a lot more time and a bigger budget. Um, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of like when a movie studio used, used to use like, uh, George Lucas's, you know, company for special effects oh, yeah, or something. Yeah. It, it feels like very collaborative in that way. <laughs> oh, it definitely was, but it was just the overall story as a kid. My, my, I was like, when I finally, I was really young and I was like, what? And I forget my, I think my dad tried to explain it, like, Oh, it's just, it's subconscious. I was like, what? I was really young. I just, just I was like, so where'd the monster comes from him? And, <laughs> yeah. And, you're kind of like, explain that again. Why? Why? <laughs> nah, my dad's all, it's, it, it's, it's subconscious. It's the thing that we, we all do subconsciously and said, and that's why the monster came to life um, in his sleep because he would have dreams. And he didn't realize that the dreams he was having weren't dreams. They were actually the creature. He was just visualizing it happened, but he was thinking of their dreams. I think it kind of touches on the fact that, you know, we mentioned earlier what the poster looked like to pull people in. I bet if you had told people this is going to be like the Tempest, they'd be like, um, that's not what we're used to sci-fi being like. <laughs> and so it's kind of like throw them off with that poster, get them in here and then, you know, reel them in and, and, and have them watch something deep, you know, something with with a lot of depth to the story. So, yeah, and I, I guess. Oh, I like was, yeah. And it was this it was just that sci-fi was always kind of like as a kid growing up, sci-fi was always kind of simple. It was kind of done in the sense of like Buck Rogers, you know, it was very a simple, yeah. good guy, bad guy stuff. And I kind of grew up on that, but where something like fifth element, I'm sorry, with the, um, uh, forbidden planet, it was that one. And, uh, the day the earth stood still with the both like, mm -hmm. uh, or such big monumental sci-fi movies with ro both of them had robots in them with right. such, such a great twist on the sending you to think one thing and turning the other direction. But the idea that there was actually no monsters, on this planet, except for what, what the people and we're the, the monsters. Yeah. The yeah. earth, the earth, the, <laughs> the colonists came to this planet with a dead race. They killed themselves off decades ago, if not millions of years ago. And he gets there and by them living there, the scientists, uh, what happened was everybody was like, we've been here for X amount of time. We want to go home. Now the colonists mm -hmm. did and they all voted and he felt really upset, but he was okay with it. And then, his subconscious took over and started killing people. Yeah. So, yeah. Was, and, and the thing is, and it's at the turning point in that movie where you finally, with the, when our heroes arrive, that's when he finally pieces it all together, but he feels guilty and that's why he wants to die with the place because he realizes that he's the one that did it. So, right. He yeah. wants to kind of atone for his sins. Right. Yeah. It, it definitely reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, like a twilight zone episode or, you know, there's a lot of, I think star Trek episodes that spring to mind watching this too. Like you said, it's obviously influenced those so much. Yeah, I feel like another really fun thing about it, it's very, um, it's 
kind of, I mean, I think it is categorized as sci-fi fantasy. So that way it's yes. definitely more like soft sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's you're, not you're... super grounded in Yeah, they don't technology. spend a it's lot of hard time. Sci-fi, but it yeah. has enough to where it's like, this all makes sense. It's yeah. not just completely like made up fantasy world stuff. Right. And the <laughs> thing is, I love, again, this is why I love that era. There's the whole 50s, 60s retro sci-fi, the yeah. art, the art yes. deco, the house, the furniture, and like the spaceship was very kind of like very military looking. But the way his house was designed with the big like stone fish display in his, in his little water garden, that was so madman. That was like very 60s retro like art direction. Just I love all that stuff. Yeah, and just me personally, I love all her dresses. <laughs> like I kept looking at like each one that she puts on. I really like the one, especially that she has at the very end that has that hood. I'm like, that looks so cool. I want to make all these things. Like it's very chic, and it definitely, you know, I think her kind of sort of skater dress um, <laughs> profile that she has in there definitely, I think, influenced like Star Trek and oh, yeah, the uniforms. Yeah, for sure. and like oh, yeah. this kind of skimpiness of it because it's kind of racy for yeah. the '50s. Uh, her oh, skirt's really high. They yes, mentioned it was. that. Yeah, it was a big <laughs> and deal. I think that influenced like you know Logan's Run and other movies. I mean, that became sort of a trope in in, the, in that yeah. era of like the women just. It's like, hey, it's the future. We can wear what we want, and she says that. So <laughs> yeah. I like that part of it too. <laughs> and the one thing we, I think you know, we all tapped on it earlier about it. It's like it's that when you people watch the show, you got to understand too. This was done in the fifties, so the banter between the guys and the women, it's like these guys were kind of like sailors on a ship and they meet this young woman and she, we found out she's technically, she's 25 years old and it's all done harmlessly. And the guys are like, Hey there, baby. Like it's, we were all kind of joking about how there's times of change, but when you watch it now, it's, there's a sense of innocent to it. And you don't understand when this film was made, but it was, there's no ill intent, but these guys, it was just a whole different, like, era of it just it was very funny that the guys are just like oh hey you know like uh, taken by this young woman and like and even <laughs> even the captain says you got to understand I, I have a ship full of men <laughs> like you've been in space and they haven't make a comment that they've been in space for like a year i think they've been on this mission uh, yeah doing their output yeah, I, I forget the amount of days but it, it does it's it's a little over a year yeah I think I remember. yeah the guys have been a little been in space for about a year and it's yeah. like but again it's just love, loving the concept of just the groundbreaking stuff of just colonizing in space in the 50s and i was very young and the idea that this whole monster spawns from a technology that came from this guy's mind but just a brilliant yeah. show oh for sure i actually just remembered one of my favorite scenes. It's kind of like the the real the comic relief, like the short order cook looking guy. Oh yeah, oh, right. <laughs> With the yeah, boot, yeah, yeah. He has the, yeah, the I like he, he gets uh, <laughs> Robbie to replicate him uh, his whiskey. And my one of my favorite scenes with him is when he tastes the replicated whiskey. He like coughs and goes smooth. <laughs> and I like how Robbie like starts immediately drinking it, and he's like, yeah. "No, what are you doing? That's the only whiskey we have." Yeah, it's like it's very. Um, the whole vibe of that whole crew is like they're super young they're sailors like you said and so that's kind of the lens that you have to view all that under but it's um it definitely harkens back to like a you know an older time and a yeah. more romantic view of of all that and it, it's pretty fun it is in this yeah but you're right that scenes you asked about the scene we walk the krill the guys walking through the ship but also i think my favorite scene too is when we get to see the id for the first time and oh, yeah. when they're, when they're shooting, when they're shooting it with a ray gun the cool thing about it is that we see it, but we never really do see it. We see it, mm-hmm. we see a resonant of it, like 
it's this monstrosity on two like it's got legs like he's got two like two legs yeah and, and, i like the way they teased it too with the with the uh bones the, that they found or the fossil and the, the the footprints yeah the footprint yeah, they the cast it and they're like look at how big this is that's a really good visual way to like you know pump up your audience like we're going to reveal this later and i think it sets up a precedent that a lot of successful both you know creature and sci-fi movies have where they don't necessarily show you the whole creature because sometimes it's what you don't see you know in, in a lot of ways that that really pays off yeah and, and the idea that when you get to see the energy thing just it's, it's and it's it's like doing that weird like screaming and moving its mouth around and <laughs> yeah and it's just yeah and grabbing the guy it it's the, this i went, was at the this one thing i love about moving to los angeles when i did was that uh, I grew up in the Midwest, and so there's things that people out here in California take for granted. And that when you live out here, all of a sudden they're like, "Hey, they're showing the um, Blade Runner at the theater." You're like, "What?" Or they're showing RoboCop, or they're 2001 and Forbidden Planet. So while I was still, I was at the Egyptian theater. They did a screening of um, Forbidden Planet, mm-hmm. and I could not wait. I rushed out with some friends. We went out, and I'll never forget seeing that in 70 millimeter in a theater. And it plays so much differently when you see it on the giant screen to realize to see this is how people saw it in the time it was meant to be seen. And you catch a movie like this, you gotta understand that people are watching this on their TV screens, their big screen TVs. But to be totally immersed in a theater with this thing happening, it's it's has an impact. And that's why for all you people out there, I know this this pandemic thing is really taking a hit on the theaters. Um and that it's changing the way that theaters are going to release their movies, but they still make more money when they release them theatrically. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to pull the plug on the theaters, but a lot of theaters, I know, for example, I heard that AMC is really struggling right now. They might not be able to survive the pandemic, Yeah. but um, once things blow over guys and it starts, it starts to become a vaccine and the world starts opening up. I can't tell you people enough, go see things in the theater. I love seeing movies in the theater. Um, and there was a Halloween a couple of years back. They did a screening of Alien in the Pasadena Art Life Theater. And I went and they do this thing every year where every around Halloween time, I'm, a, I'm an Art Light member. They do these screenings for people who are members. And you get to watch classic films on big screens. You got to understand that when you see a film that how it was meant to be seen in a theater, it really does make a difference. It does make an impact. Um, you are preaching to the choir with us, Ted, yeah, because I, that is a huge push that we have on this show. We care so much about movie theaters, and we know that they're going through such a difficult time right now. Yeah, and it is. Like before, before this, we uh, I think we saw more old movies in theaters than new, new movies. Yeah, We'd because of Alamo. To, yeah. yeah, we have Alamo here, and we were there almost every week watching an old movie. You know, I've never been. I heard so much great things about the Alamo Theater, and I've never been there yet. They're really fun. Uh, I got yeah. the ArcLight. That was the thing where um, when ArcLight first opened up, uh, I was I paid. I got a membership and everything. I paid X amount of money. My friend's like, "Wait, are you going to pay this amount of money for a ticket?" I said, "No, I'm paying <laughs> for the experience. I'm, yeah, you are. I'm, I'm paying for a theater where I don't have to worry about somebody getting on a cell phone, or somebody yelling, mm-hmm. or, or some kid playing some video game." on his phone when I'm trying to watch a movie. He's like, Art Light Theater takes movie screenings seriously. So the seats are comfortable. There's great lighting. There's great ushers. And they're really strict about that kind of stuff. So there's no fear. And also you buy your ticket early to pick out your perfect seat. And I'm one of those guys who just jumps online and gets to sit. And every, my family used to tease me about it. Because every time there'd be a movie, my wife would say, you don't, it doesn't have to be an Arc Light. 
we can <laughs> we can go to another theater. I said, yeah, we could, but we will not. What if we do it? You'll understand why when we do it because we will we will not get the treatment. There'll be noisy people. There'll be somebody on their phone. Yeah. It's like no, no. You go to art like if you get the experience, and, and so it's like that. I miss and during this pandemic, I miss going to the theater. I miss going to the movie. I made the, the whole preparation of driving the car, parking it, getting out, get, get, getting some food and then getting our seat. And and my wife and I are big about trailers. We're going to get there in plenty of time to watch trailers. So I used to yep. love sitting yeah. sit in the theater and watching trailers of so many movies you'd want to see that by the time the trailers are over, you turn to your friend and go, well, well, well we're here to see it. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I forgot. Yeah. I forgot what movie you're seeing. Oh, that's right, Star Wars. Yeah, it's like it happens. So it's like that. That part of it I miss and I love. So, thank you so much for having me on your show because this is. Um, I got in this industry because I love movies, and I love. I wanted to be a part of it so bad that being able to make something or contribute something to this process, um, is what I got into, and so. Oh yeah, of course. We totally appreciate having you. Um, you know, we we knew you from the the cosplay scene, but we've heard you talk before at, at your panels at conventions, and we got to hear about your background in film. And I was like, oh, it'd be so cool to have him on. So you could talk yes, about this, yeah. And we one hundred percent, you know, support uh, theaters. Um, I talked about it. It's ironic, like you're saying, because of the p- pandemic now, but I was always trying to get people to come out. I would hear locally. I try to have events where I'd invite people. I'm going to go see this movie. Come with me. And it can be hard sometimes to get people out of their homes. But you touched on something very specific. And I think it's that there's an energy to when you see a movie theater in the theater with other people. When you're with an audience, you know, experiencing a film is just different. Right. Because um, you're kind of, you know, it's a shared experience. Yeah. Not not a, not to make a shameless plug. I, I wrote and directed a film years ago, decades. Uh, it's, well, it's going, it's, I think it's almost 10 years. As we, we, we shot it in, two, we wrote it in 2002, put it together, shot it. And then when it post, it wasn't done until 2004. And we, we actually sold it. It got released and it got picked up uh, by a company called Think Films. Um, and which the irony of all that was that after they picked up and distributed, the, the company went bankrupt. No, no. Oh, that's awful. Yes. I mean, it got out there. So the film ran on Netflix and stuff. And it, it, oh, that's good. But it was a genre film. I, I realized that making a movie, I wanted to make something. So I, I, I had an outline for a script. And my friends uh, the back in Missouri came into some money and they came to me and said, do you still want to direct a film? I said, yes. I said, because we want to produce one. So they pitched to me and I, I, with my friend Wyatt and I, we wrote this thing. Uh, I wrote, I wrote a call, it's called Guardian of the Realm and it's basically about uh, uh, it's demon hunters in Los Angeles. It, it's basically oh, nice. it's it's basically Buffy meets Blade. It's what, awesome. I, what I always tell people. But what ended up happening was it, it was um, – was such an ambitious project and we ended up making this thing. Uh, and it's, I was just crazy that we did it. We made it and we got, it got picked up and it, it ran around it on Netflix for a while, but I learned so much making that movie and it was a, such a huge learning curve. And it I'm was, sure it sounds but, intimidating for me. <laughs> it was, but one of the, one of the things I learned too, is that we, we were making it at a time where, I was told like we, we, you have to make it kind of a genre film. So you have to have a lot of uh, um, action and, and sex and violence and stuff in there. And I, the film, my friends reached out to me and they're going to, they're going to clean it up. We're in the process of trying to redistribute it. They're going to get it cleaned up. I was, I was about oh, to cool. say, can we watch this? Yeah, it's like, awesome. Where, where can we get this? <laughs> it, it, it's in the process of going. And when I made it, I always tell people, this is a, it was not rated, but it's, it's for, uh, 
uh, nobody under 18. It's, it's got, <laughs> it's, I, it's one of those things where we, we put nudity and stuff in it cause we were told that's going to sell and, yeah. and we did, and I watch it now and it's kind of like, uh, it doesn't really, the film doesn't need it. <laughs> it's not really needed, but it, you watch it now. It's kind of like, uh, okay, it's there. But it's like, it, as a film, you learn by, as a filmmaker, you make stuff. And it's like, and by the time it's like, yeah, I wish we could have done it again differently. So we, what we done, we thought, well, since we're going to re-release it, we're taking it right now. and just trying to clean up as much as we can and cut stuff out of it. And this, I'm actually doing the opposite cut of a director's cut. The director's cut is actually shorter than the original cut. Mm. That's always a going <laughs> joke. People are like, oh, it's a director's cut. And then you watch a movie, like, oh, there's a reason why they cut that out. So Yeah, it's not it's not yeah. a director's cut that's like three or four hours. <laughs> um, so, you know, since we do have you on here and you did mention, you know, your your time in the industry, uh, can you tell our audience a little bit, like some of the stuff that you've worked on too? Ooh, uh, okay. Well, it, I, when I first came on, I started doing miniatures. I worked on a, a made for TV movie called uh, miracle landing. It was, mm. and it was the Connie Selica and some other actor. And it was interesting because it was about the Aloha tragedy. It was actually, I know people know about this. It was an Aloha airlines and they were flying the top of the plane peeled open while they were, oh, wow. while they were in air and the top of the, plane just peeled up like a banana peel and they and they had one casualty wow was, so they were able to land yeah and, he, the, the pilot wow. this guy was a, the, like the right stuff man this woman it was a flight attendant that went out ripped open she was gone but he was able everybody was in their seatbelts he dropped the plane into altitude and it could get enough oxygen and he landed the plane so we wow. I, did, I did a we did miniatures for that and then i went on to start doing just a lot of miniatures and i went on to start doing movies we did um but i go i just go i can go from big to small but uh, most people know the fifth element. Uh, yeah. that, that was seven months of my life. I did. Uh, we. Uh, I was a crew doing miniatures. I uh, helped build the flying cab. Now, when I say the flying so cab, cool. I built the one six scale miniature of the cab. They made a wow. full. They made a full size <laughs> one in England, where anything you shot, we see Bruce Willis and Mila in the in the cab. That was a full size one. But any mm-hmm. shots where you saw the full size cab by itself independently was a model. And gotcha. uh, I was in charge. Yeah. I was in charge of that, and we built. I built the models. Nice. Did them all that. We did the cop cars, the models. Um, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, I did a lot of props for that. Um, oh wow! Uh, big thing was Titanic. I uh, worked on Titanic for four months, and we did miniature. Um, they built the ship, but when I came in, we were doing all the miniature scaled rooms, the one mm. six, the one six scale rooms of the ship, because uh, when the ship started turning and rolling, uh, we they would build giant miniatures and flood it with water. And yeah. so this is all. And when you watch the movie, it's spectacular because you can't tell. We did, no, not at all. Yeah. And there's a um, scenes of like the hallways and the doors are blown off and the water's rushing in. That was, that's a, that was a giant miniature as well too. There's such amazing. Oh, it looks so color. good. Yeah, it was remarkable. <laughs> always been a fan of miniatures. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the few, and the, uh, the Titanic itself uh, on the, on the ocean bottom, where they come up to with these submersibles. Uh, when you see the master shot, that's all just giant miniatures we built. Uh, and with all, it's, it was just remarkable, all the stuff they did. <clears throat> yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier you're partial, obviously, to practical effects. But I think, you know, one big reason is the way that they age. You know, it's like the movie stays looking so good. Like all these films that we're talking about, you know, even like the fifth element, uh, Titanic and forbidden planet too. It's like, that really makes a film, I think have staying power when those practical effects are things that you can't necessarily detect that, you know, a lot of time and care went into them. And there's just a level of realism when, you know, actors are interacting with something real versus, 
you know, like you said earlier, just a soundstage or something. Or a tennis ball or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. And one thing about this too, you got to understand, Star Wars was made in 77, guys. And right. you got to the only thing that stands out is their hairstyles. I mean, barely. It's like, <laughs> but it's it's the one thing of like, when you watch that film to this day, that still holds up. Very few films from the 70s you watch by today's standards holds up. But Star Wars, it was, George worked so hard to make it so timeless in such a different place that mm -hmm. it's just all the, the clothing, the arch, it's like everybody had this, such a different look to it. You create this universe and that film still holds up. It's just remarkable. But yeah. I uh, think that the, the, I was going to say, I think the belts um, on Forbidden Planet that the, uh, that the crew members wear reminded me a lot of Star Wars, like all the leather and the big buckles yeah, and stuff. Very thick brown belt with the big like aluminum buckle. And like their sidearm <laughs> on there. It looks like, like Luke's and Han's belt. Yeah, I was like, I wonder if that influenced that. But we would notice that because we have, you know, we, we have Luke and Han costumes. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. It's funny because when people, it's, uh, I used, uh, when I used to do conventions, I had an assistant with me and, uh, and she'd always would, she knew the titles of my films. They were, what do you work on, Ted? I'd be like, oh, I'd always freeze because I always think about like, I worked on so much stuff that I can't retain all of it, but it's like, if you guys really want to know what I've done, you guys can go to my website, eviltedsmith.com and they've hit, there's a, um, a thing about me. If you click on that, it gives you and shows you the history of all my, my work in the industry. Uh, one of my funny short spares, I worked on a lot of music videos uh, for a while. Oh, cool. I love music videos. In the nineties and I worked with Rob Zombie and I did a lot of Rob Zombie music videos mm. and I built a lot of stuff for him, for the Rob Zombie. I did some stuff for House of a Thousand Corpses uh and actually i played a zombie ghoul in the movie as well too oh nice so it was awesome. like yeah and but my all-time big claim to fame was i worked with my friend steve wang and he got the chance to direct this movie called the giver and oh yeah yeah the giver was this uh japanese uh manga and it was a great popular manga and also became a popular animated series and made a couple of movies and he did a live action version of it and the first one's fun I, it's by any standards anybody's a real giver fan it's a little hokey because they kind of try to do it on a budget uh, this one with uh, Mark Hamill. Yes, Mark Hamill's okay. in it. I got to work with Mark on that one. And I got to play uh, a gang member, and I played Striker the Lizard. Um, this is a big, giant lizard uh, creature character called Striker, and I got to play him. That sounds so fun. And then, <laughs> and then Steve went on to do a sequel to it called Skyver Dark Hero, which is a little bit more to the original, and I got to work on that one too. Mm -hmm. That was fun because when I moved out here, I worked with a bunch of really talented people. And I was just a sponge at the time, learning from the people and working on their projects. But that was working with Steve. He did a film, a low-budget film called Kung Fu Rascals. It was his first film, and he shot it all in Super 8. And the thing was, when working with Steve, watching him, I got a real understanding of what it takes to make a movie. And I'm going to tell you, everybody out there, that when you work on a movie and when it's all done, you'll say to yourself, it's a miracle this film even got done. It's yeah watching movies every it's such a struggle and it doesn't matter what budget how big it is how many people are on there's always stuff that happens or something that always goes wrong and so just the art of filmmaking itself is just amazing so just any film that comes out there no matter if it's a good film or a bad film so much work went into making it <laughs> for sure mm -hmm. and and having said that and having one that you're um, re-putting together to distribute. Have you thought about getting in the director's chair again in the future? Nope. I am done. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that was one and that, done for me. That was I'm it. Good. <laughs> you know, I learned, it, here's the thing that's funny about it. And I learned that I had, a, I had an opportunity presented to me. There's like, Ted, this is great. And they, I, at the time I really did. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I was like, I have this story. And I had another story I wanted to tell it was, this is post-apocalyptic cyborg movie I wanted to do about this girl walking the wasteland with her white cybernetic arm. And she's going to 
she was in the hunt for these three cyborgs that killed her father. And we had a rough premise and I was working on the script and that's when they approached me. And when I started writing, I realized I can't afford it. It's like as much as I like this story, <laughs> I'm, it's a first time director and I'm going to try to build all these costumes and suits and, and shoot in the desert. I'm like, no way. So I pulled the plug and just started writing something doable. And then of course laughed because guardian became such an ambitious film in itself. But in doing that, um, uh, working on, uh, basically working with Steve Wang, it's just, I just realized what was going to go into it and it wasn't by working with him made me realize what my limitations were and what was understandable. Mm-hmm. And, and I still did this movie guardian and even doing that, it, it was like, it takes so much work and that I realized there's guys out there that are, are directors and they're built to be directors and you have to take a beating and be able to dust yourself off and get back up and you sure. have to be your own cheerleader. And I've met so many people that got it. And yeah. I, and I realized I did it and I'm proud of it and I'm done because <laughs> it's just it's a lot. It, well, it's just that when you work with a crew of people, we were doing this thing for next to no money. And we, I pulled in so many favors and when people saw the movie, they, people thought I had like a million dollars. People were like, did you have like a mill or quarter? And I just kept saying, yes, I lied. Oh yeah. It was about a million dollars um, because we were trying to sell the movie. But mm-hmm. the, what made it possible why the film looked like it had a budget was because I was cashing in favors uh, I had visual effects friends. I had uh, a guy from New Zealand who was a stunt guy who worked on Xena. And then he was the friend with this guy, James Liu, who loaned us all these stunt equipment. And then she's stunt guys that knew Glenn from Xena and they come on there. And so as you stunt, I had a, a great team of stuntmen doing martial. Oh, that's, so awesome. yeah. that, had, that's good having that network. Yeah, Networking did, is important. And I had all these makeup guys and visual effects guys. And so I did, and also I did makeup at the time too. And so, and I was building all my costumes and I was calling my friends, begging them to help me. So we, I, I assembled this team of 50 people and when making a film, you realize it's like being a parent and having 50 kids <laughs> and, and each kid has a different personality. So yeah. you can't now you understand. And I always tell people when you pay people, that's why I wish you could pay people so you could scream at them like Jim Cameron, like because when, <laughs> when you're paying somebody, you can scream at them. And I wasn't paying anybody enough to scream at anybody, although you wanted to. So I had to really, I had to be very <laughs> gentle with everybody. Like, okay, Hey, you're going to do this and do that. And you had to treat everybody differently. And, but when it was all said and done, we had the premiere and we sat, my friend Wyatt and I, who co-wrote it with me and the producers, we sat in the back row and we watched this movie being projected. We were, it was at the LA film school and it was digitally projected on a like huge, massive screen, like a real movie. And we sat back there and it was the first time I was able to sit back and watch my movie with an audience and the, the theater was packed and it was our premiere and just watching people howl and laugh in the spots you didn't think they were going to laugh and and like like jump at different moments and some things nailed some things landed some things didn't land it but overall it was still great and that was a magic moment and i thought you know it took so much to get here i'm glad to experience and i'm done (laughs) well and you know you're talking about that shared experience again like getting to see the impact that it's having on your audience too yeah and there's a friend i'm working with uh, john soares and he's uh making a film uh he did one called the, the danger element uh, I think it's on YouTube. Mm. I think it's on YouTube or Amazon or whatever. But he finished that, okay. and I worked with him. And, and I, he's such a natural, talented filmmaker. And if you guys just go to, uh, you can go to YouTube and just type in a Danger Element trailer, and just from the trailer you can see this guy's got it. He's got it. And so he's doing another film right now called. It's I think it's a sequel to that story. 
uh, called Jinji, the book of lies or something. Mm. Uh, I believe that's it. And I'm doing visual effects and building props for that as well. So that's my very cool. Goal. Awesome. So even though I'm not directing, I'm still in it. So, but again, yeah, but I realized after working with people like him that I, I, it's, it's those, um, I just rather would work for people who have the passion to be a director. It's like, yeah. it was fun. I learned a lot doing it and I'm really proud of that film. And, but as a whole, I'm done. So, <laughs> well, you know, to kind of wrap up um, our interview and talk about my last couple of questions that I have for every guest that I have on here, okay. I have a couple for you. Uh, the number one question is, you know, why is Forbidden Planet out of all these movies so special to you? Why do you think you keep returning to it and you've seen it so many times? It's it's like why people always pick their favorite athlete or baseball team or football team or your actor, actress. There's something that happened to you at a time at your age. And I was like very young. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I was at that age. I think it was like, I want to say eight, eight or nine. I was at an eight. It was like, it was like either nine or I was around the eight or nine or 10. Uh, I, I was pretty young when I saw it and just seeing the robot, I was like, wait a minute. How is this? Why? How? And like, one of those things when you're a kid starting for science fiction and you see something for the first time, you're thinking, how did I not see this before? Where, how did this get past me? Yeah. And I remember seeing pictures of Robbie. I was like, but never knew what it was from. And seeing pictures of the spaceship or seeing Robbie, but never know. And finally seeing the movie that this is all was from. And for the first time, it made such an impact on me. And it just lit the fuse for everything else beyond that point. It was just like, I wanted more. And of course, then shortly after that, you know, we're talking about 14 years old and Star Wars came out in 77. It was like, oh, I'm sure. And then <laughs> the, rest was, the rest was history. But it was just like, that was the, so I always come back to it. And then as I get older to go back and find out all the history and the lore behind it um, and why it's looked upon to becoming the, the sci-fi classic. And it's like one of their biggest quotes of all time. It's always said it's like one of the greatest sci-fi masterpieces of all time. And it's yeah, when absolutely. it was made. Yeah. So it, it falls in the realm of like sci-fi films of this time. So yeah, it's just, I come back to, cause it was the age when I found it, when I discovered it. And what's your elevator pitch to someone that hasn't seen it before? Like, how do you, how do you pitch this movie to them? Oh, um, uh, the pitch pitch somebody to see Forbidden Planet. I, mm. I, I said, I, I guess when it says that, you have, it's I guess it's for the, you know, how about this? It's uh, I think it'd be the foundation of like deep sci-fi, like deep thinking sci-fi. It's like, yeah, this, this is not. It's like science. It's like this is like it's a it's like a space opera, and then I said sure. like it's like this is not your standard sci-fi shoot 'em up gun. I said this is. Forbidden Planet is like a deep, heavy-duty sci-fi film. For all you sci-fi fans out there who love deep science fiction, that is where Forbidden Planet. Yeah, you have to you have to give the credit to this movie for really blazing a trail yeah, and you know setting a standard. It, but it all boils down to symbol. It's just a good script. Yeah. They had a good script, and the good script is a foundation of anything which Hollywood is desperately losing. Um, it's not so much as visual effects as a good script. I agree. I mean, if, if the if the content isn't there, then, you know, it can look amazing and people will forget about it. But the people remember this film because it's yeah. got such a great story. Yes, it does. Oh, yeah. And uh, I know you kind of plugged your website. Is uh, Where else can people find you? Oh, you guys, uh, mostly if you go to eviltedsmith.com, I have almost social media links there as well, too. But I'm on Instagram, evilted uh, underscore channel, uh, Twitter. I think I'm evilted40. Uh, I have a Facebook group called um, the Evil Evil Ted, just by that same name on my uh, Evil Ted page on Facebook. But uh, 
most everything is listed. Also, guys, if you want to know what's going on next with me or what's going to be happening, if you go to my website, eviltedsmith.com. I have a mailing list. You can get on the mailing list. I try to keep you posted what I'm being doing next. Um, but that's been a been just about it. Just mostly uh, trying to get out of the funk and getting back to my videos and making more content for my YouTube uh, audience. Yeah. Well, th thank you so much for coming on, Ted. You know, if you come back, you have to think of another movie. We'd love to have you back. You were an amazing guest. So thank you so much. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? I got tons. Anytime. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I could talk All right. for well, hours. Good one. <laughs> awesome. That's what we do here. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.